0: Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because He trusteth in thee. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord, prepared to take in God's Word, to study it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We do that through the private use of 1 John 1.9. When we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, then He instantly forgives us. We're restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can then take in the Word this morning. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word because You have told us that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That means that it illuminates in the truth every sphere of human conduct, from our thought life to our overt activities. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to objectively lay our thoughts before the searchlight of your word, that we might have our thinking renovated, so that we might think your thoughts after you, so that we might have our thinking reshaped by your word, that as a result, our lives might glorify you as we advance to spiritual maturity so that we can glorify you to the maximum. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to utilize it, it, see it with clarity. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, this morning, we're starting a very important passage. In fact, this is... I think, perhaps, the most crucial passage in the New Testament for understanding the dynamics of the spiritual life. And for that reason, we're going to take a little more time. We'll slow down. Someone might say, how could we go any slower? But don't be sarcastic. I see that, Mr. David. We're going to slow down a little bit just to uh, make sure we really understand these things. We're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is the importance of the subject. Number two is that I find very few people have accurately understood this passage. It's not simply a matter of exegesis. It's a matter of interpretation. And that means that you have to compare Scripture with other Scripture. So we will take some time to look at parallel passages to see how they illuminate the understanding that we Uh, need for for, uh, Galatians 5, 16 to 26. So this morning I want to give some introductory material, some introductory issues as we get into this and an overview of the passage. Let's begin with just a little review related to the whole doctrine of sanctification. Point one, begin with a definition of sanctification. It's one of those words that people do not use frequently, so it's hard for them to understand. Basically, it comes from the uh, Greek word agiasmas, which means to set apart. To set apart. It looks like this in the Greek. It has a rough breathing mark, so that's translated w- or with an H, h a g should be an omicron, H-E-G-I-O-S-M-O-S, agiosmos. It means to set apart. Now, when most people think about this word, it's, they think about its older translation, to become holy. But holy is one of those words in English that has been bandied about and utilized so much in religious conversation that most people don't have a clue what it means, yet they feel good when they use it. So we are going to studiously avoid that word. It's an old King James word and usually doesn't mean a lot to people. In fact, most people want to impart into the meaning of that word the idea of moral purity. Well, if we go back to a little Old Testament understanding of the whole concept of sanctification, the Old Testament word is kadash. Now, the that's... Well, it's spelled like Q-A-D-A-S-H. Now, if you take that and you add the uh, masculine ending to that to make it a masculine noun or the feminine ending to make it a feminine noun, it referred to temple prostitutes in the worship of the Baalim, the Baal gods of the Canaanites. Now, Obviously, if that's the root meaning and it refers to temple prostitutes, how can that mean moral purity? Good question. It doesn't. It also refers to the inanimate objects in the temple, that they were set apart to God, they were sanctified, they were made holy. Well, how can a bowl or how can a labor or how can a candlestick have moral purity? It can't be immoral. The root meaning, therefore, is something that is set apart to the service of God. And in the case of the temple prostitutes, they were set apart to the service of their gods. So the root meaning has to do with being set apart to God. And the process of sanctification in the spiritual life is the process whereby we are made more and more useful to God as we advance spiritually. So let's take that general definition and get a little more precise definition. Sanctification is a technical term which means to be set apart to God for a special purpose. To be set apart to God for a special purpose. Every church-age believer is set apart to God in three ways. Three ways, and they correspond to the three different uh, senses of salvation, which we've been studying in James on Wednesday night. Phase one is at salvation. Salvation. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, when we are saved from the penalty of sin, we are positionally set apart to God. And so we refer to this as positional sanctification. In phase two, as we advance spiritually and we are saved from the power of sin, this is referred to as experiential sanctification or progressive Sanctification. In phase three, when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, and we are saved from the presence of sin because we no longer are in a mortal body with a sin nature, this is perfect, sometimes called perfect sanctification. Or completed sanctification. Different terms like that are used to, to develop the, the third category of glorification or ultimate sanctification. Is another word: perfect, mature, or ultimate sanctification, because we are no longer uh, no longer have a sin nature. So there are three different phases, and the one that we're concerned about in this study is experiential or progressive sanctification. Because, in essence, this is referring to the dynamics of the Christian life. In other words, how do we grow? That's a very important question. What are the mechanics by which the believer moves from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? Now, you would think that after 2,000 years of church history and 2,000 years of Christians studying the Bible, that there would be some clarity in the answer to that question. And it's amazing how little clarity there is. There are about six different models of sanctification. And what I mean by a model is just a basic overview, a basic methodology of how the believer advances. There's a Wesleyan model. That, of course, is related to the Methodist view. There is a reformed model. That's the model that's related to covenant theology they came out of Calvinism. There is a holiness model that's very similar to the Wesleyan model. And then there is also a Pentecostal model. And then there is a mystical model, which is you'll find mostly in Roman Catholic churches. And then a few years ago, there was a very excellent book for understanding sanctification that was published called Five Views of Sanctification, What the writer did was he took a theologian from each camp and they wrote a defense of their view of the spiritual life and then it was critiqued by representatives from the other four views. And the final view in that particular book was called the Augustinian-Dispensational View of Sanctification and was written by John Walbert, Dr. Walbert who is now Chancellor of Dallas Seminary. And in that he basically articulated the view of the spiritual life that we hold. And one of the things that set that view apart from all of the other views is there was a basis for understanding the difference between morality and spirituality. One thing that became very clear in evaluating the other models of sanctification is that they all tend to identify spirituality with morality. Now, this is a key principle to remember. Anything that the unbeliever can do is not spirituality. Because the spiritual life in the church age, as it is outlined in Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, and Romans 6 through 8, is uniquely a product of God the Holy Spirit. That changes the whole dynamic. That means that whatever we do in the spiritual life, we can't evaluate it simply on the basis of how moral or ethical we are because the sin nature itself can produce a lot of religious activity. The sin nature can produce a lot of morality under the category of human good. So we have to have a method, some means to distinguish what we're doing in our life, whether it's just a product of the flesh the sin nature, or whether it is the product of the Holy Spirit. Now, you would think that that would have occurred to a few people over 2,000 years, and it's amazing how it hasn't. And it's amazing to me how so many pastors and theologians hide behind such vague generalities and simply repeat what the Scripture says without really analyzing what the Scripture says. Recently, I picked up a computer program that uh, has a, a graduate of Dallas Seminary in fact his father was a doctrinal pastor down in East Texas when I was going to college and I had met him and his son went to seminary and while he was going through seminary in the early 90's he thought it was such so difficult to try to wade through all of the theological journals uh, Bibliotheca Sacra is the one that Dallas Seminary publishes that he decided to start scanning the articles in to a disk so that he could then uh, analyze them and scan them uh, through, through using the computer and electronically. And he's turned this into a business, and that's what he does. And he's put out a journal CD now that has about six or seven different theological journals on it. And in just a matter of seconds, you can type in a Scripture reference, or you can type in a subject like filling, with, filling of the Spirit or baptism of the Spirit or indwelling of the Spirit, sanctification, and pick a term, which I did this last week, and punch the button, Hit the return key, and in 10 seconds, you'll have a list of every article in these journals that cover as much as 45 years of of theological articles, and you'll get everything that's been written on that subject, and then you just click on that article, and it'll go directly to the place in that article where that term has been discussed. So I spent some 25 or 30 hours probably this last week scanning through these various articles and discussions to see if I could get a little light shed on the subject. And I was amazed how little light there was on the subject. When we come to our verse, let's stop and take a little overview here. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now if you're interacting at all with what the text says the first thing you ought to ask is what exactly does it mean to walk by the spirit and how do you do that? And I'm amazed at how few people even ask the question. It's sort of assumed that we know how to do that and that that is something related to just morality. So we need to review some of these things and the role of the spirit in the believer's life so As we're looking at the doctrine of sanctification, we looked at point one, which was a definition. Point number two is that this refers to the process of the believer's growth in phase two under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In the church age, this is the process of the believer's growth in phase two under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, we must remember that the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the church age, the age in which we're living, is unique. Never before in human history has so much been given to the everyday ordinary believer. Every single believer in this church age has been the recipient of different ministries from God the Holy Spirit. Now, regeneration and efficacious grace were available in the Old Testament. But the other ministries were not available in the Old Testament. They are unique to the New Testament. And so that tells us up front that the, our relationship to God the Holy Spirit is crucial in this church age. Crucial to our growth spiritually. It's not just learning doctrine. It's not just doing certain activities overtly or even thinking certain thoughts inwardly. As much as it is something that is empowered and motivated by a right relationship with God the Holy Spirit. So we must evaluate this. And before we do, we need to review these ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer in this age. Now, if you're teaching downstairs with the kids, I have a friend of mine back in Houston who used the acronym... Biss to remember the ministries of God the Holy Spirit so you can teach the kids about Biss. The first is efficacious grace. Efficacious grace is a ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the believer at the moment of salvation. And let's read a definition. This is a specific ministry of God the Holy Spirit who acknowledges the faith of the unbeliever and transforms the faith of that spiritually dead person into something effective for salvation. Remember, we are not saved because of our faith. We are saved through faith. Scripture makes that very clear. In the Greek of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we read, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the preposition dia plus the genitive of pistis. The genitive means through. Dia plus the genitive means through. If it was in the accusative case, it would mean because. God the Holy Spirit is very precise. We are not saved because we believe. That would make that would put the location of the merit on us. Because we were smart enough to believe. We were wise enough to believe. But when it is through faith, faith is simply the means of appropriating salvation and it puts all of the merit in the object of faith, which is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So we are not saved through faith, we are saved because of faith. Now, every single human being since Adam's fall has been born dichotomous. This means that he is composed of two parts. He has a soul, and he has a body. The soul is comprised of his self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, conscience, and volition. And then he has a physical body. But he cannot have a relationship with God because he is minus a human spirit. He lacks the human spirit which is that immaterial part of our nature which allows us to have fellowship with God, rapport with God, and to understand spiritual things. Only at regeneration, and that's why it is called regeneration or rebirth, do we receive a human spirit. Adam was originally created trichotomous with a body, soul, and spirit, but when he disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. When God said, Thou shalt certainly die at the moment you eat from the, from the fruit, he lost his human spirit, So he was separated from God and could no longer have a relationship with God so that when God came to walk in the garden as he did every day and to teach Adam and the woman about uh, the creation, they ran and hid because they could no longer have a relationship with God. So regeneration, God the Holy Spirit imparts to us a human spirit. But because as an unbeliever we lack that, Nothing we do, we lack the perfect righteousness of God, nothing we do can, can um, gain favor with God. So when we exercise faith in the gospel, which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, at that instant God the Holy Spirit takes that faith and He transforms it into something that is effective or efficacious for salvation. He makes it possible because what we do has no value in and of itself. He makes it effective. So that's efficacious grace. That's the E. The R is regeneration, which we've already covered to some degree, that at the instant of faith, simultaneously with His work of efficacious grace, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to us a human spirit. A human spirit. So, Regeneration is defined as spiritual birth or being born again. At that moment, we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. And at the same instant that that human spirit is imparted to us, God the Father imputes to it His very own life, eternal life, so that we have eternal life as a possession that can never be lost. The third ministry is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. A passage for uh, efficacious grace would be Romans 8, 28 to 30. A passage for regeneration would be John 3, 3 through 7 and Titus 3, 5 passage for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is 1 Corinthians 12.13. This occurs at the, also at the instant of salvation. And at that instant, every believer is identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit identifies us. That is the significance of baptism. The literal meaning of baptism is to dip, plunge, or immerse, but its significance is identification. For example, in the 5th century B.C., soldiers in Greece, the the new soldiers, the recruits, after they got out of boot camp and they went through their graduation ceremony, would take their spears and they would dip them into a bucket of pig's blood. This identified the spears with blood. They had never been used in combat. and identified them with, with blood and with violence because that was their purpose. So the meaning, the significance of baptism is identification. And at that instant of salvation, God the Holy Spirit identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is referred to as positional truth. And we enter into an eternal union with Christ. He places us into Christ, into His body. That's the significance of Baptism of the Holy Spirit, and at that instant, we are created a new spiritual species. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. So the believer is placed into permanent union with Christ, and this is the basis of our positional sanctification. Now, the fourth ministry of God the Holy Spirit to us at the moment of salvation is the indwelling. Now, there's a difference between the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. They are distinct words, and they are distinct ministries. Unfortunately, especially in the Pentecostal holiness camp, they have viewed those words as synonyms. So they really get confused because they think the filling and the baptism and the indwelling are all the same thing. But they are three distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit is a permanent possession of every single believer. According to the passages or 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19. At the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence... "...in the believer. He transforms our bodies into a temple for the simultaneously, simultaneous indwelling of Jesus Christ as the Shekinah glory." So Jesus Christ indwells us, and it is God the Holy Spirit who converts our bodies into a temple for the simultaneous indwelling of Jesus Christ as the Shekinah glory. You see, we are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit... This has never happened before in human history. So we have the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now this is unique. Never before in human history were believers indwelled. In the Old Testament, I described that ministry under the term endowment because it was a temporary ministry and it was not for the same purpose as the indwelling today or the filling today. The indwelling of the the Holy Spirit today is related to the indwelling of Jesus Christ, and the filling of the Holy Spirit is related to living the spiritual life. In the Old Testament, the spiritual life was not based on a relationship with God the Holy Spirit because they did not have a relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Only a very few people, less than a hundred, in all of the Old Testament were imbued by God the Holy Spirit. And it was always related to their job or their function in terms of theocratic leadership. The Old Testament economy in the age of Israel, they were a theocracy. God was the king of Israel. Even David, when he says in the Psalms, when my Lord, when the Lord said to my Lord, Now, obviously, he's referring to the Trinity, God the Son, speaking to God the Father. But when he says, when the Lord said to my Lord, he's indicating that he is under an authority. Well, David was the king of Israel. Who's he under? The only one that he is under is God, who is the king of Israel. So, you had kings, prophets, priests and various other administrators who at different times were endued with God the Holy Spirit, and it could be lost, and it was a ministry that was designed to give them wisdom and skill in their arena of leadership. The best illustration is the temple and tabernacle craftsmen, the goldsmiths, the silversmiths, the jewelers, the carpenters, who were building the furniture for the temple and the tabernacle were endued with God the Holy Spirit. It didn't have anything to do with a what we would call a spiritual function, but to give them wisdom. And the same word is used there. It's the Hebrew word chokmah. This H-O-C-H-M-A-H. And the basic meaning is skill, and it was came to mean wisdom because wisdom. Is the ability to learn information and then to transform that and apply it skillfully in life to create something beautiful with your life that glorifies God. But its root meaning is skill, and you see that in the work of the craftsmen, the jewelers, the silversmiths, the goldsmiths that worked on the, on the tabernacle and temple. So you have Hochmai's uh, skill, and the endowment was simply to give them that skill. The same thing with the rulers and the leaders prophets and priests, under prophets under the ministry of, of inspiration. So, in the Old Testament, it was a temporary ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, it's permanent. No believer can lose the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. It is a permanent possession. However, this is contrasted with the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is found and mandated in Ephesians 5.18. And because it is an imperative mood there for plerao, that means either you will or you will not be filled. Now, you are always indwelt. But you may or may not be filled. And that the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, therefore, is going to be related to your volition. Because whenever you have an imperative, that is something that is directed to your volition. And you can either apply it or not apply it. You can either obey or disobey So, Ephesians 5.18 relates to the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit here, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit as power for the spiritual life, specifically related to the learning, the retention, and the recall and application of Bible doctrine. So you see there the two sources of power in living the spiritual life in the church age relate to the filling of the Holy Spirit as one, and Bible doctrine second. The next ministry of God the Holy Spirit is the sealing ministry. This takes place at the moment of salvation and is related to the doctrine of eternal security. The sealing ministry, the sealing relates to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The seal is an analogy taken from the Roman Empire where it was a sign of ownership, a signature of ownership. So the sealing ministry of God the Holy Spirit means that at salvation, the believer has the seal of God placed upon him. This is a signature guarantee which means that he can never lose his salvation because he is in Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed at the moment of belief in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. The sealing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And last but not least, we have the distribution of spiritual gifts at the moment of salvation. Every believer in Jesus Christ is given at least one spiritual gift. Do not confuse the spiritual gifts with natural abilities or natural talents. Remember, there are a lot of people who have natural abilities to teach. There are people who have natural abilities to help other people natural abilities of administration. But these are specifically related to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to be used in the ministry of the local church. So that means that their development and use is going to be related to your advance to spiritual maturity. Okay, now that is a brief review for us of the unique ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer in the church age. Now, let's stop and look at get an overview of the passage as we continue our introduction. Let me read this passage. You have an initial mandate given in verse 16. But I say, walk by means of, and that is an instrumental dative, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh." So right here in verse 16 through 18, we see the initial command from the Apostle Paul to believers to live on the basis of the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is contrasted with carrying out the desire of the flesh. Then verse 17 and 18, he explains the nature of this conflict. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. The flesh is a term for the sin nature. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do that which you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, that's the basis for the conflict which we have in the spiritual life, that we have to overcome if we're going to advance spiritually. Then the next paragraph is verse verses 19 to 21, which lists the works of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. And then we have basically a grocery list of characteristics that are produced by the sin nature. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which is the Greek word pharmakeia, and that's related to uh, the use of drugs, specifically hallucinogens. At that time, they were used in a spiritual manner. and That's used a lot of times today in the drug culture, used in the same way. That's what it means by sorcery. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So by the time we get down to 21, we see that we're going to have to do some detailed study in the nature of the sin nature, the nature of the conflict between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit, and how we can walk, what the mechanics are for walking, so that we do not carry out the desire or the lust of the flesh. And then we're going to have to see what this means in verse 21 about practicing these things and not inheriting the kingdom. Then in verses 22 through 23, we have a list of the production of God the Holy Spirit. And we have to distinguish this from false production or counterfeit production, which comes from the sin nature. Because obviously, unbelievers can have some kind of love, some measure of happiness, some level of contentment and tranquility. They can be patient. They can be gentle. They can be good. They can have some of these characteristics to some degree. So when the Scripture says that these are the production of the Holy Spirit, we have to understand what the dynamic is so that these characteristics are produced in our life, not as a result of sort of a pulling ourselves up by the bootstrap type of approach, which is typical of almost every system of sanctification out there, but we have to to understand the mechanics so that this is the Holy Spirit doing this in our life, And not ourselves, because if we're doing it from the flesh, it doesn't count. Verse 24, verse 24 to 25 is a conclusion. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then we have a bad, or then we have another translation, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. By the Spirit. Now, in your English, it looks like it's just a restatement of what we have in verse 16, but it's a different Greek word for walk in verse 25. It's stoicheo and not peripeteo. Peripeteo emphasizes that moment-by-moment dependence. Stoicheo indicates a step-by-step following, following in somebody's footsteps, following according to a specific pattern. So, it's a slightly different nuance. But what we have here is that the whole subject is bracketed by two commands. An imperative, present active imperative in verse 16, and a hortatory subjunctive, which means it's an exhortation to obedience, in verse 25. So, that tells us that everything from 16 down to 25 is related to walking By means of the Spirit. How is this done? How do we do it? What are the dynamics? And what are the mechanics? So this is going to take some time because I think we need to relate this to the entire doctrine of walking in the New Testament. And there is a lot that is said. And once we put these passages together by comparing Scripture with Scripture, I think we'll have a fairly good view of what the Scripture says about the spiritual life. The thing is that God did not give us the Scriptures like a systematic theology. Scriptures were revealed progressively. That's the doctrine of progressive revelation. He incrementally revealed certain doctrines over time, and He might reveal a certain amount in the Old Testament, and then it was given fuller expression in the New Testament. Peter got parts of it. Paul got the greater part of it. John got part of it. And it wasn't until the whole New Testament came together that we had the whole or complete revelation of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, 6 through 13, or 8 through 13, which is the passage that everybody goes to over tongues, it says, for now, that is, Paul's writing, now in the present apostolic age, the pre-canon age, now we know in part and prophesy in part. In other words, our knowledge and our prophecy is partial because I have a little bit... John has a little bit, Peter has a little bit, but it's incomplete. Until it's complete, we don't have a good picture of ourselves or of God's relationship to us or of our spiritual life. And then he says, but when the complete comes, usually translated perfect, but teleos means complete, when the complete comes, that is the completed canon, then the partial will be done away with, those gifts that provided partial knowledge, not prophecy and tongues and knowledge. And then he says, now we see through a mirror dimly. And he compares Scripture to, to a, that mirror analogy. He says, now we see through a mirror dimly. Why? Because we don't have a complete canon. But then, that is, when we have a complete canon, we will see face-to-face. Not face-to-face with God, but face-to-face with God's completed revelation. And he says, and we will be known even as we are known. In other words, only on the basis of the completed canon of Scripture can we truly know who we are in our relationship to God and how we live. And we can't know anything until we know that. If that knowledge is, is partial, then we really can't have a full Christian life. So now that we have a completed canon of Scripture, we can. And so we have to take this apart and compare what God revealed at different times and different stages in different epistles to different writers. So let's back up and start our study of verse 16. clearly indicates a shift in topic when Paul uses the particle duh, which is translated but. And he says, but I say, he's emphasizing this, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, we'll just start off today. We won't get much further than this, probably for a couple of weeks. Walk by means of the Spirit. The command is a present active imperative of the verb peri. Peripateo, P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O, which is your standard word for walking. In fact, in uh, 5th century B.C., when Socrates was teaching, his followers were called peripatetics because he used to, it wasn't like a classroom today where you sat down and a lecturer came up in front of the class and lectured for an hour. Socrates would take his students and they just walked around town and they talked about whatever uh, came before their eyes and they related to, to uh, uh, philosophy and they talked about these events in detail. So they were called the peripatetics because they walked around town. So the root meaning is to walk. Now, we have to analyze it syntactically. When you have a present imperative, An imperative is the mood of command. This is a mandate for the spiritual life. Present tense is usually continual action, but when you have the combination of a present tense and an imperative mood, it looks at the action as continuing, and the present imperative, as opposed to the aorist imperative, is used for general principles related to the spiritual life. General principles related to the spiritual life specifically for habits or behavior patterns that should characterize our life. So the present imperative emphasizes this as a habit or a behavior pattern that should characterize our life. The active voice means that you and I, each believer, is the one who performs the action. The Holy Spirit does not do this for us. He does not override our volition. God always respects our volition, and God never makes us conform. So we have to make the decision as to whether or not we are going to walk by means of the Spirit. That is up to us. It means that the ultimate issue is a volitional issue. The thrust of the the mandate is ingressive-progressive. That means we are to begin doing it and to continue doing it and make it a customary pattern in our life. Now, we are to walk, and we'll come back and discuss what that means. To walk, it is used as a metaphor, basically, for living life, for the conduct of one's life. We are to conduct our lives by means of the Spirit. And this is the dative case of Pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A Numa is the standard word for the Holy Spirit and here it does not have the modifier hagias for holy but we know from the context that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit and not the human spirit. Now this is a dative of means or an instrumental Dative. There's been a lot of discussion about this category of the dative. Now, there are some people who teach with an eight, Greek with an 8K system, in which case it would just be an instrumental, data, uh, instrumental case. But I teach with a 5K system. That's basically what I was taught at, at seminary, and there's very little practical difference between the two. But we have to talk about this because there's a lot of confusion related to this. You'll have some people say this is a, a, a dative of personal agency. Because the Holy Spirit, after all, is a person. So therefore, it can't be impersonal means or instrument. It must be person, because obviously it's a person who does this. But remember, in this construction, who's the subject of the verb? It's you. You're the one performing the action, not the Holy Spirit. So you're the person involved. If you have personal agency, personal agency only occurs when you have a perfect passive verb. Because agency means that the agent is the one who performs the action. Agent performs the action. But when you are walking by means of the Spirit, it is not the Spirit that is performing the action. You are performing the action. You see what's happened in the last 15 years or so with the advent of computers. You can get out there. In fact, there's a website that Tufts University has that you can go to and you can do a word search, take a word like Peripateo and in about 30 seconds you can go out on their website and you can search every piece of ancient classical Greek literature and come up with a list of every single time this word was used in classical Greek literature. And you can do all kinds of further grammatical and syntactical analyses on that word in a matter of seconds. Now, these are the kinds of things that, in a, a generation or two ago, men would dedicate their entire life to investigating, and then at the end of their life, they would write a doctoral dissertation. And now you can generate this kind of study in about 15 seconds. The result of that is a lot of earlier conceptions about Greek syntax have been refined in the last 15 or 20 years. And things that I was taught were true when I was a student in seminary 20 years ago have been refined and are discovered that that's not exactly true, that there are many exceptions to some of those rules. And in fact, some of those rules are just plain, were just plain wrong. And so it's very important today for people to keep abreast of some of these studies so that they are not making some fundamental errors in the Greek. But in an earlier generation, about 50 years ago, one of the major battles between fundamentalists and liberals was over the personhood of God the Holy Spirit, whether the Holy Spirit was an impersonal force or whether he was a distinct person in the Godhead. And of course, those who were conservatives and believed the Bible advocated the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. And so, people like that tend to have a knee-jerk reaction that if you're saying this is impersonal means, they're saying, no, 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 God the Holy Spirit is a person, and so because of that, it is personal agency. Now, I'm belaboring this because it's still taught today, and I had professors in seminary who didn't understand it. We're not talking about, when we talk about personal agency and impersonal means, we're talking about grammatical categories. Grammatical categories. And a grammatical term does not mean that, that the person who's viewed as the agent or the means is a person or not. That's not the issue. It is simply a grammatical terminology. So the person is, is the agent with a passive verb that performs the action. So means views that person, whether it's a, a, person, or an in, a person or an impersonal object, it views them as the means to achieving something. For example, a child could say that, that God disciplined me by means of my parents. The parents are the instrument God uses to discipline the child. That does not mean the parents are impersonal, or not persons. It means that they are used grammatically in that sentence as an impersonal means. That's all that that means. Now, for those of you who got lost there, The bottom line is that the Holy Spirit then is the means by which the walk, the life, the conduct of the believer is advanced. He is the means. We are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you get a little older, sometimes you have hip trouble or knee trouble and you have to walk by means of a walker. Well, the walker that we're using in the spiritual life is God the Holy Spirit. We, it emphasizes dependency upon God the Holy Spirit as opposed to the flesh. So now we're going to stop and we're going to start taking apart the doctrine of walking in the New Testament. The doctrine of walking. Point number one. We need to look at the words involved. This is a brief lexical study. The first word we've already looked at, which is the verb peripeteo. Peripeteo is usually used of a forward step-by-step motion. If you think about it, when you're first learning, if you're a baby, you have to think about each step. You have to focus. Only as time progresses do you get to the point where you don't have to think so much about it. But if you ever have any sort of a major injury and you have to learn how to walk again, you realize how much effort and concentration, muscle control, goes into walking. And we can take that by analogy into the spiritual life, that at the very beginning there has to be a lot of concentration and a lot of focus on just who you're depending on in this thing called the spiritual life, whether you're depending on yourself or whether you're depending on God the Holy Spirit. So peripateo emphasizes that forward step-by-step motion, and it's used metaphorically to represent the entire panorama of a person's life, both their thought life and overt activity. The second word that's used is the word stoicheo. S-T-O-I-C-H-E-O. And that means to walk in a straight line. And it's used metaphorically to march in step, to march in ranks, to walk in agreement with, to walk forward in an orderly manner. And it's primarily used in this passage for advancing in the spiritual life in relation to the mandates given in the Word of God under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. So it's used for advancing according to a standard, following the footsteps of the Spirit. Now, what are those footsteps? See, it sounds so good, you could just stop and talk so spiritually, get that tone in your voice about what it means to follow the Spirit. And to walk step in step as the Spirit leads you. And you feel so good and warm and fuzzy. And I could do that, but then when you leave and you say, well, I don't see those steps in front of me. How do we do that? Where do those steps come from? And nobody seems to ask or answer those questions. And the steps are the mandates of Scripture. That God the Holy Spirit specifically lays out a track down which we are to walk. And that track is spelled out specifically for us in all the mandates and prohibitions of the New Testament. Third word that is used for walking, is also used in Galatians, and we saw it back in Galatians 2.14, and that is orthopedeo, from which we get our word orthopedics. And it means to set something straight, to walk straight. There it was used in a negative sense because Paul was challenging... Peter because he was no longer walking a straight course because he had caved in to the gospel of legalism. And so he was no longer walking a straight path. And then the fourth word is a very general word that is used. We've seen it a lot. I haven't mentioned it much in uh, John, in Peru, P-O-R-E-U-O, And it means to walk about, to journey, to travel. Uh, Usually it's used in the Gospels of Jesus' journeys or travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Sometimes it's used in the sense of going about one's daily activities. These are the four basic words used for walking in the New Testament. Now we'll just see a brief overview of why walking is crucial. Walking in the New Testament, we are told in Romans six four that we are to walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Romans eight four. Walk according to the norm of the Holy Spirit and not the flesh. So we'll have to evaluate that passage a little bit. Walk in honesty, Romans thirteen thirteen. Walk by means of faith and not by means of sight. Second Corinthians five seven. That's the faith rest drill. That means when the Word of God is more real to you than what you feel, what you experience, what you see, that's when you're operating on faith. Walk in the sphere of good works, Ephesians 2.10. We are to walk in love, in Ephesians 5.2. We are to walk in wisdom, in Colossians 4.5. We are to walk in truth, 2 John 4. We are walking according to the norm of divine mandates in Second John 6. And in Ephesians 5.8, we are to walk in the light. Negatively, we are not to walk according to the standards of the sin nature, Romans 8.4. Not according to the standards of the sin nature in Romans 8.4. Not according to the standard of men, 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Not in craftiness, 2 Corinthians 4.2. Not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Not in the emptiness of the mind, Ephesians four seventeen, And not in a disorderly manner, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Let me go over those again for those of you who are writing furiously. Walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Walk according to the norm of the Spirit and not the flesh, Romans 8, 4. Walk in honesty, Romans thirteen thirteen. Walk by means of faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Walk in the sphere of good works, Ephesians 2:10. Walk in love, Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5. Walk in truth, 2 John 4. Walk according to the norm of divine mandate, 2 John 6. Walk in the light, Ephesians 5, 8. Negatively, not according to the norms and standards of the sin nature, Romans 8, 4. Not according to the standard of men, First Corinthians three three, not in craftiness, Second Corinthians four two, not by sight, Second Corinthians five seven, not in the emptiness of the mind, Ephesians four seventeen, and not disorderly, Second Thessalonians three six. So obviously, walking is crucial to understanding the spiritual life. It is a fundamental metaphor for the spiritual life in the Scriptures. In point number three by way of introduction. In Galatians 5.16, walking by means of the Spirit is contrasted with carrying out the desire of the flesh. So there's obviously a battle going on. We're either walking by means of the Spirit or we're carrying out the desires of the flesh. The sin nature. So it's going to be the Holy Spirit versus the sin nature. Point number four. In Galatians 2.20, the Christian life is said to be lived by faith. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, the Christian life which is lived by faith is contrasted with the Galatian attempt to live the Christian life by means of the flesh in Galatians 3.3. Galatians 3.3 says, Did you begin by the Spirit or are you now trying to be matured by the sin nature? So there we see obviously the sin nature can counterfeit or produce a pseudo-spirituality. So Galatians 2.20 contrasts the spiritual life based on faith with that living in the flesh. The conclusion from all of this is that we have two options. Two absolute states. Now, that's fundamental to understand because there are many people who think that you can be a little spiritual and a little carnal. There are many people who think that as you're a young believer, you're partially living by faith and partially living by law. You know, that you, this is all progressive and, and middle of the road. And we need to understand why this isn't true. Throughout here, we see... These contrasts in Galatians, grace or law, faith or the flesh. The Holy Spirit. So we can the Holy Spirit or the flesh. So we can draw circles around these two opposites and say that walking by means of the Holy Spirit, on the basis of the faith rest drill, operating on grace, is all synonymous, and then there is another state that is based on the law. Related to the sin nature. So there, because it's based on the law, it's obviously very moral. It's uh, carrying out the desire of the flesh, carrying out the deeds of the sin nature. All of this relates to this other category. So it's clear from the whole structure of Galatians that Paul is talking about two spheres of operation. We're either operating in one or the other. And we'll come back next time. And we will see that Paul in Ephesians and John in 1 John uses a different set of terminology, darkness versus light. Because one of the important questions, one of the key questions, in fact, I had a seminary guy call me. He just graduated from seminary and he sent me an email about two months ago and he said, how do we connect The mandate of Ephesians 5.18, which is written by Paul in roughly 53 A.D., with 1 John 1.9. Where do we get this connection that confession of sin leads to the filling of the Holy Spirit? John wrote 1 John probably close to 90 A.D., some 45 years after Paul wrote what he wrote in Ephesians, and yet they're not tied together. Nowhere does Paul say be filled with the Spirit by confessing sins, and John doesn't mention the filling of the Spirit in 1 John. So how do we connect these two passages together? And that's an important question which we'll answer next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word and how as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we do indeed see the truth more profoundly. And Father, we pray that as we continue this study of walking, that it will challenge each of us in our spiritual life to be more precise and more focused on this wonderful spiritual life that you have given us. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope and without faith and without eternal life, that now would be an opportunity when they would come face to face with the issue of their eternal destiny. Scripture says, that the issue is one, that is faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't involve moral reformation of the life. It doesn't involve church membership. It doesn't involve giving money. It doesn't involve anything other than your relationship with Christ, which is determined by whether or not you accept Him as your Savior. And that is done by simply believing that He died on the cross for your sins. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here like that, that they would take the time, to simply pray to You, Father, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins, and that's all that is necessary. So, Father, now we commit this time to You for Your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.